We started uh, our chapter in Romans chapter 11 last week, and uh, so I just want to reread the first uh, six verses for us so that we are familiar with the, the context, and then we'll uh, look at uh, verses uh, 2 and uh, 3 today. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I am myself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We're taking our time as we go through this chapter because it's probably one of the more difficult chapters in the Bible, not only to comprehend and understand, but also to apply it correctly. And uh, the one thing I, I just want to spend a little time in our introduction today uh, with the underlying principle that we believe here as a Bible-believing church that when we come to study God's Word, that the Bible makes it, and God makes it very clear through His Word, that this Word can be trusted. Uh, we're not holding a questionable document in our hands. We're holding something that has been proven and tested and tried, and God keeps his word. Amen? And if he says something, that is exactly what he means, and that is exactly, precisely what he will do, what will come to pass. There's no question about it. If you look over at Titus, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the introduction here, but in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul lays down this principle about the trustworthiness of God. He says, Paul, a servant of God, in, in verse 1, and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And then in verse 2, he says this, in hope of eternal life, which God, what? Who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul himself testifies to the trustworthiness of God. See, it's not within the character of God to lie. One thing we're going through on Sunday nights in our Fundamentals of the Faith class, right now we're in chapter 3 and we're going through the attributes of God. And one of the attributes of God is His holiness, and it's incredible when you stop and think about it that God is incapable of speaking in untruth. Whatever he says will come to pass. That's why over in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Faithful. In other words, what God promises to us, beloved, is something that he will faithfully bring to pass. We don't have to go to bed at night worrying our little brains off, thinking, well, I don't know if God's going to be faithful to me tomorrow as one of his children. No, he promises he will. We don't have to wonder about, boy, are, are we going to be actually saved in the end? Well, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, we've repented of our sins and we trust in his work on the cross and not our own righteousness, then you know what? The Bible says that God will save you. And once God saves you, trust me, you're saved. There's no going back and forth, in and out. God's words, God's promises, he will faithfully fulfill. It's within his character. 
Also, in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, listen to this. This is incredible. He, he's reminding his people, the people of Israel, the people of God, in Joshua 23, 14, he says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one. I mean, we don't have to worry about the trustworthiness of our God, of our Savior. What God says will come to pass, trust me, will come to pass. Look back in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. We see here in 1 Kings chapter 8, basically, some people call this the the benediction of Solomon. He's giving an address here. And in verse 54, it says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from the before the altar of the Lord, where he knelt with his hands outstretched toward him, heaven. Verse 55. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to what? To all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. And so we have been seeing here the faithfulness of our God. That should be that should just bring up joy in your heart to realize that we don't we don't serve a questionable character. We don't serve somebody who may or may not be there tomorrow. You know, sometimes I get on the folks down here at the coffee shop because I like to get up early and their sign says they open at six o'clock. Saturdays they open at seven. And sometimes I'm down there and there's nobody there. And it's 6 o'clock, it's 6.10, it's 6. So now I got their cell phone number, so I text them. Hey, in the parking lot, not ready to go to Starbucks, you better get over here. <laughs> and they do. See, we, we don't have to worry about that. God is faithful. He shows up. Um, in First John, on, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through First John, a study of First John, and, and we learned that in First John chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, If we say we have not sinned, if we're claiming we've never sinned, it says that we make God a liar. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's probably one of the, the, the more serious sins against God. When you're telling God to his face, no, you're lying. Because it's not within the ability of God to lie. Because God speaks the truth. God keeps his word. Scripture affirms that. And scripture is authored by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit's testimony about the truthfulness of God. You can add to the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, the testimony of the Lord himself. If you look at John chapter 17, verse 3, it says this. And this is eternal life that you... that. The, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We don't serve a false God. We serve the only true God. In John 17, 17, Jesus said this when he was praying uh, to the Father. He says, sanctify them, your children, in truth. And then he says this, your word is what? Is truth. See, we live in such a relativistic society today. My wife spoke about that Saturday to the ladies, about living a biblical life in a politically correct world. So you have the testimony here of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also have the testimony of God himself. In in Psalm 31, verse 5, it says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God or true God. The God of truth. 
See, it's very important that we establish the veracity of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word. That God is a God who keeps his promises. If you don't believe that, then you're going to have a hard time moving on. (laughs) There are no voiding of God's promises. What God's promises will come to will come to uh, pass. And so we see here, basically, God has made this very incredible, comprehensive, and even specific promises to this people that he calls Israel, his chosen people. God promises them certain things. And if you go through the Old Testament, you can, you can chapter after chapter, there's promises to Israel. And God made these, they weren't just general promises, they were very specific promises. I don't know if you remember when we were going through Romans chapter 9, if you look back at verse 4, Romans 9 verse 4, look at what it says there. It says, these are Israelites, and to them belong what? Here are some of the promises. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. See, they were very blessed to be called God's chosen people. And they had received many promises from God. And what happens is people look at Israel and they say, well, they're not doing too well now with God, are they? (laughs) I mean, God God sent them a Savior. And what they do? They crucified him. And so there's a conversation going on here between Paul, really, and his, his readers, his audience, that really deals with the divine integrity of God himself. Because some people were saying, well, you know what, Paul? Israel hasn't really followed God's agenda. So hasn't God just canceled all these promises? Weren't these promises all based on Israel's performance? And so... That, if that's true, then he must have just canceled them. They must have been written on a whiteboard, and he just took the thing and wiped it off. Oh, you know, you didn't do what I told you, so that's it. I mean, if that's what we believe, if God changes his promises to Israel, beloved, as as those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, we're in a lot of trouble, if that's what you believe. Because we have a God who can't be trusted. And who's just willy-nilly and changes his mind about whatever he promises. Well, that's not the truth. And we know that not to be true. But that's what we have to consider here this morning. And so this chapter, chapter 11, Paul really speaks about God's faithfulness to Israel. And he speaks about their future restoration in spite of their own rejection. In spite of the fact that they turned from God. And as we go through this chapter verse by verse in the coming weeks. I trust you'll be able to understand how this not only applies to the nation of Israel. And the people of Israel. But it also directly applies to us as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. See I'm praying by the time we're done with chapter 11. You'll be saying wow this is incredible salvation. Nothing's going to shake this. You're going to be built up and edified in your belief that God is faithful, that God is true. It really speaks to our security in Christ. I mean, the very fact that Israel is still around as a nation after all they've gone through is really testimony that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises without question. And the Bible says that they were elected by God as his chosen nation and by his own sovereign, unconditional purpose, he promises to bless them. And when God makes those kind of arrangements in the Bible, they're called covenants. They're called covenants. Covenant is basically an agreement between two parties. And there's two kinds of covenants. There's conditional covenants In other words, hey, I'll do this if you'll do that. And there's unconditional covenants. Hey, I'm going to do this. doesn't matter what you're going to do. 
See, a condition or, or, or bilateral covenant is an agreement that's binding by both parties for its fulfillment. Both parties agree to fulfill certain conditions of the agreement, of the covenant. And either, if either party fails to meet their responsibilities, then what happens to the covenant? What happens to the agreement? It's broken. It's broken. Neither party has to fulfill the expectation of the covenant then. But see, an unconditional or unilateral covenant is an agreement between two parties, but only one of the parties has to do something. Nothing is required of the other party. And see, when you stop and you think about the blessings that came to Israel through the different covenants, you think of the Abrahamic covenant. This was not conditioned upon them. God determined to do it no matter what they did. God would bring about the right circumstances and he would fulfill his promises. Why? Because that was part of his plan. That was part of his purpose. And so God chose a people. God made promises to this people, Israel. God confirmed those promises by an oath. You can go back to Genesis chapter 15, verses chapter 12 through 15, really talks about this covenant. He confirmed it. How did he confirm it? It says that he had animals cut in half, and this is the way they used to do it. You know how, I don't know if you ever did this, I've never done this because it kind of grossed me out, but some people, they'll, they'll do uh, an oath with a little blood, you know, they'll cut themselves and, you know, ah, I'm not going to do that today. But, you know, some people do that. You know, little kids, they'll, they'll make little things like that, agreements. Well, God had them cut these animals in half, and the pieces that were laid on, on two sides of the altar there, two, two birds were killed, they're laid on each side. And, and as, as he is this smoking furnace and burning lamp passed between these, these pieces of, of sacrifice, basically this covenant was with God himself. He was swearing by himself, making an oath to himself that he would keep his promises concerning his people. And so these divine covenants were based on God's sovereign election confirmed by this divine oath that God took. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, if you turn over there, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13, look at what it says here. It kind of applies directly to what we're looking at. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 to 16, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, you know, how many times you've said, honestly, honest to God, I'm telling the truth, oh, my mother's grave or, or whatever, so help me God. What are you doing? You're, 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 you're telling a, you're, you're, you're kind of pledging a truth based on somebody else. Well, there's nobody that God can pledge on. You know, it wouldn't make any sense for God to say, yeah, on Steve's grave, I'm telling the truth. That, that's ridiculous, right? I'm just a sinner. Who am I? So what he says here in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So the covenants of God swore in the oath of God demanded that God preserve these people. That's what he promised to do, and he swore by himself. I mean, stop and think, if Israel just ceased to exist, we could just take this book and toss it. Throw it out. It would be meaningless. Because God would not keep his promises. The existence of Israel, even today, is a, is a sign of God's faithfulness to us. And you stop and you think of all that the Jewish people have gone through. I mean, the Holocaust is just part of it, but that alone itself. He caused those people somehow to continue, to continue to live. Even, even when some of the old, the, the people that were, their uh, are kind of buddies in the Old Testament, not buddies, but cohorts in the Old Testament, other nations, they're totally gone. They're wiped out. 
But not Israel. They're still around. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Israel, that's God's ancient people. Israel. No, they're not God's ancient people. They're God's present people. And they're God's future people. And he's going to fulfill all these covenants and all these promises that he made to them. Because if he doesn't, he's not God. So he has to maintain their existence. That's why we believe God has a plan for Israel. It's not based on Israel. It's based on who? It's based on God. It's based on his character. It's based on his integrity. It's based on his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. I mean, when you stop and think about it and you apply that to us as children of God, when we come to Christ and repent of our sins, why are we saved? We're not saved because of who we are. We're not saved because of something we've done. We're saved because of what? Of God's faithfulness. Of God's provision. Sometimes we get that mixed up. Sometimes we want to share our testimony. And, you know, then I, I, I figured out that I needed the Lord. And so I made this commitment to God. And I love God. And I serve God. And I, 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 I. And God's up there going, hey, you had nothing to do with this, pal. Very little, if anything. Because even when you agreed to follow me, I was working in your heart in ways you didn't even know. And I brought you to that point. The Bible says that the only reason we love God, beloved, is because why? He loved us first. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're some spiritual giant that found this, worked on this relationship with God, and now you're patting yourself on the back because, no. No. By the grace of God every day, you know what? That's what you rely on. It's only by his grace. And the same thing with Israel. It's only by God's grace. So God promised Israel. He promised Israel to say, basically, he said, you know what? I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to give you a glorious kingdom. I'm going to give you a land where you can dwell peacefully. I'm going to give you future blessings that are just going to blow your mind. And you know what? Those blessings that he promised will come to pass. I mean, you just think of Israel and the nation it is today and the nation it was years ago. People used to laugh when they used to read, you know, verses about the prosperity of of Israel. It's a desert. There's nothing there. And then all of a sudden... God blessed Israel. And they're one of the world powers today. See, all that will come to pass because God is faithful. Now, the Bible also says that the blessings aren't only restricted to the nation of Israel. In other words, see, this is how Israel viewed their blessing by God. They said, okay, God, you chose us as your people, so here we are in this bucket of blessing. And all they wanted to do was wallow in their blessing. So God continued to give them all these blessings. He gave them the word of God. And what did they do? They just sat in the bathtub of blessing and kind of splashed each other and said, isn't this nice? And God kind of said, hey, wait a minute. You're not doing what I told you to do. You're not called to just sit there in this bathtub of blessing and just wallow in all these blessings. These blessings are supposed to splash out to other people. See, they were, they were holding on to God's word with white knuckles saying, hey, God gave it to us. This is us. We're, we're God's chosen people. So when Paul came along and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, you have to remember that uh, salvation is not through your, your works of righteousness. It's through the work of Christ on the cross. And so God has blessed Israel in incredible ways. But it wasn't for them just to be this bucket of blessing. He wanted them to be a a channel of blessing that reached out to others. And so some people look at Israel and they say, well, you know what? They haven't lived up to their end of the bargain. I mean, they they killed the Messiah. They rejected everything about God. You see in the Old Testament, every time you you look at what's going on with Israel, they're, they're, they're living in a way that's displeasing to God. They're being disciplined. And so some people conclude, well, you know, that's why we have the church today. And we're going to talk about that. 
But you have the Abrahamic covenant, and in the Abrahamic covenant, and we're not going to do a whole series on covenants here because we don't have time, but just to give you a quick synopsis of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, basically there were three things. He promised them the land, he promised them descendants, and he promised them a blessing and redemption. The Abrahamic covenant. Then there's the Davidic covenant. And by the way, the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. It wasn't based on what Israel did. The Davidic covenant, in which God promises to give them a king, the Messiah. You find that in 2 Samuel 7. It's, it's, it's also uh, uh, summarized in, in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. There you have the verses. But that talked about through the, the Davidic line, the Messiah would come. And then you had another covenant called the Palestinian or the land covenant, as some call it. It's not Palestinian covenant. Doesn't, it doesn't, it's not really called that in the Bible, but people refer to it as that. That's referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which basically promises that God will give Israel a land to possess. And these are all unconditional covenant. You come to the Mosaic covenant, that's a conditional covenant. That's God saying, hey, you follow this law, then you will be blessed. And you can read about that in the Bible as well. And then we come to Jeremiah 31, where God talks about a new covenant, something that we experience here in the, in the New Testament, in the church age. When God says, you know what, you're not going to have to go to a temple to worship. You're not going to do all these things. I'm going to put, I'm going to put my law, my word right in your heart. And he promises to redeem a people that he calls his own. He says that he will make a way of forgiveness possible for humanity to come where they can come through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be forgiven and restore fellowship when they, their hearts have been turned from God. When you come through Christ, he is the, the mediator, the Bible says. You know, you're not going to get any closer to God by thinking, oh, I, all I have to do is come to church, or all I have to do is join this denomination, or do that, or do this. No, the only way you're going to get close to God is to come by his means, and his means is he says, you know what, there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's what you do with Christ, what you do with his sacrifice, what you do with the cross. That's the only thing that matters. The new covenant was even predicted in the Old Testament while the old covenant was still in effect. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these guys talked about this coming one day. And all these promises given by God have to be fulfilled to the Jewish people. Or God's a liar, and his word is not faithful, it's not true. Now, Jews in the Old Testament times, and Jews in the New Testament times, understood that these promises weren't just some kind of illustrative thing. They believed, literally, that they were going to take place. So sometimes you have people in the New Testament say, well, literally that doesn't really mean that. I think it means this. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a simple-minded man, but if God says thousand years, I'm going to believe it's thousand years. Okay, so that's, I'd rather err on that side. Because they, they believed that they would literally be fulfilled as well. They understood that there would be a real kingdom. They understood that there would be real blessing, that, that there would be a real possession of the Holy Land. And, and if you doubt me, just think of the time when Jesus was here on earth. What did the disciples think Jesus was going to do? Jesus, they thought Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem, right? Rise up with all these people that were following him, take over the government, kick out the Romans, and hey, establish the kingdom on earth. They believed literally that was going to happen. And so they were scratching their head when they see Jesus hanging on a cross and he's dead. They're going, whoa, what happened to the dream? You know, what happened to all this stuff that was going to happen? They were blown away. Why? Because they literally believed certain promises were going to be fulfilled. And trust me, they will be one day because Christ is coming back. He will rule and reign here on this earth for a thousand years. All right? And so they understood them to be literal promises. But then you have the Messiah coming and they reject him. 
And that's really where we're at here in Romans chapter 11. They turned their backs on the gift that God gave them through the Messiah. And eventually they end up saying, you know what? We don't want to have anything with this guy. We don't want this guy to rule over us. You know, as a matter of fact, crucify him. They, they even exchanged him for who? Barabbas, a common criminal. They rejected God's gift to them, the Messiah. And they said, ah, you know what? Give us the criminal. We'll take the criminal. Kill the other guy. We don't want him. And Peter even spoke of this in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, when he says this, You have killed the prince of life, speaking to the Jews, and you desired a murderer, Barabbas, and you killed the prince of life. You desired one who took life, and you killed the one who gave life. I mean, talk about a mixed up group of people. They, they just came unhinged. And so some people, as a result of all that, they conclude, well, obviously they didn't act in a good way. So uh, I believe that, that God just rejected Israel. That somehow he just canceled all, the, all his promises out to them. That's the end of all the promises to Israel. And many teach today, many theologians teach today, as a matter of fact, that all those promises to Israel, God doesn't just wipe them out. He just makes them null and void to Israel. And now we can apply them to the church because we're the new Israel now. So the old Israel, don't worry about that. It doesn't matter about the land. It doesn't matter about the people over there. It's all about the church. It's called replacement theology. We wholeheartedly reject that. It's unbiblical. You don't see that in Bible, in the Bible at all. See, and this is the question that Paul is raising here as we come to this portion of Romans chapter 11. And we went through this last week. He asked this big question in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he not only asked the question, but he also immediately gave the answer. Absolutely not. The idea idea in the original language is, that's unthinkable. Don't even say that. That's, That's crazy talk. And we've seen how as we've come through the book of Romans, he's given this tremendous message about salvation by grace through faith, that we're justified through the death of Christ and Christ alone and his resurrection. And so the question of his readers was like, hey, wait a minute, you know, Paul, if this is true, then why are all these Jews rejecting this message? And is God still going to bless them if they reject that message? How is it? true that people outside of Israel are belonging to God. That, that doesn't make sense to a Jew. That would be foreign to their thinking. And so we went through chapters 9, we went through chapters 10, and that talks about the idea that the Jews rejectioned. And then they came up with the other question, if the Jews have rejected Christ, then aren't the, all the promises canceled to them? And see, that's what he kind of talks about. He said, hey, if they use Christ as a stumbling stone, as he talked about in chapter 9, and they've continued to ignorantly pursue their own self-righteousness, thinking that somehow that's going to get them some credit with God. And then in chapter 10, verse 3, all that following up to where we're at now. Hey, if they haven't heard all this, if they haven't listened to this, if they're continuing to be disobedient, at the end of chapter 10, verse 21, it says they're, a, they're a, a, a disobedient and contrary people. And some people say, see, God's rejecting them. Look at what he's calling them. That must be the answer. Well, Paul addresses that question right in verse 1. He says, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Is Israel in unbelief today? Definitely Chapter 9 says that. But you know what? Chapter 9 also says that all that firmly fits into the sovereign plan of God somehow. It's through Israel's unbelief that what? Gentiles are getting saved. And as the Gentiles are getting saved, what's that causing Israel? The Bible says that that causes Israel to be jealous. Wait a minute. How are they having a relationship with God? They're not even Jewish. And so you have this incredible combination of the sovereignty of God and the fault of man. And you stop and you look at it and it says, well, you know, they've rejected Christ. They must be set aside from God's blessing. They've rejected the gospel. God's not going to bless them. Yes, he is. Because God knew that they were going to reject him. 
And God knew that all along, and so he planned for it. That's part of his sovereign plan. And yet chapter 10 makes it very clear that it's their own fault. Their own disbelief is their own fault. God sovereignly has planned all this out. That's another attribute that we're studying on Sunday nights, the sovereignty of God. But because they're out of God's blessing right now, does that mean that God somehow has permanently disowned Israel? That's what some would say. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And that's what Paul is sharing with us here in chapter 11. He says, look, if that's, if that's possible, if God has rejected his people Israel, there's so many promises that he's made to Israel. If he doesn't fulfill those, he's a liar. So just forget it. Walk away. And we've just seen how God doesn't lie. His word is trustworthy. So Paul has to defend the fact that God has not canceled his promises to Israel because another reason is how are you going to get any Gentiles to believe in a God that cancels his promises, that doesn't live up to his word? They're going to go, we don't want that kind of God. We want a God we can rely on. And if he's chosen his own people and they're just going to be rejected, what kind of God is that? So has God set Israel aside for a time? Definitely. And really it's for the fulfillment of the salvation of the Gentiles. But a lot of people don't want to think about that. See, that's why Paul can end in such a positive note. If you read all the way to the end of the chapter, in chapter 11, look at what he says in verse 33. He said, basically, he just kind of, this is just mind-blowing. This is what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has made, been his counselor? In other words, are you going to tell God what to do, really? Or who has given a gift to him that he might need to be repaid? For from him and through him... And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The reason Paul can end on that kind of a note, even though at the beginning of the chapter it seems kind of convoluted and mixed up, because he believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes in the trustworthiness of God and his word. So you say, well, what's the evidence for this? Well, the first evidence, the, the overall evidence, is the remnant that God always, the principle of, of God always having a remnant of people. There's always a, a group of people that God hasn't given up on. He's always got somebody in the queue. There's always somebody there. And the first example of that, we looked at this last week, was the Apostle Paul's testimony. God's person. Who was it? It was Paul. And that's why he, in verse uh, one there, he gives the, the answer, the big question. God rejected his people? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example. And then he goes on. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a tribe, uh, a, a descendant of Abraham, of the mem- a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what's he doing? He's using his own testimony of God's faithfulness. He's saying, look, if God has rejected Israel and they're all rejected... How am I, a Jew, standing here in Christ, being forgiven and having a relationship with my Creator? That's what Paul is simply saying. He says, I couldn't have entered into that that blessing if God had rejected me. See, a lot of people think that somehow when a Jew becomes a Christian, they cease being a Jew. That's not true. They're always Jewish. It's just that they've come to a fuller understanding. God has blessed them and taken the blinders off their eyes. And for the first time in their life, they realize, wow, the one that we put on the cross, that's our Savior. And the Bible says that's going to happen to Israel in the future as well. That's why you don't see a lot of Jewish believers in Christ. That's why Jews and Christians are kind of like at the opposite polar ends. Because they have a wrong understanding of who Christ was. But Paul says, look, if God has rejected all the Jews, well, I'm one, and I'm here, and I'm not rejected by God.
Because Paul was transformed. Paul belongs to God. Think about who Paul was before he came to Christ. He was Saul, right? Pharisee. He was a blasphemer. I mean, he walked around, led groups of people, gave approval to those who killed Christians. Not just because he was a bad guy. He was doing it as a religious duty. Kind of like ISIS today thinks that, you know, it's part of their agenda to kill anybody who's an infidel. Same thing. I mean, they don't, you know, they could love you and they would still do what they're doing. Because they don't really care. Their theology teaches them that everybody else who's not part of their little group has to die. And that somehow they get rewarded in heaven if they carry out these acts of terrorism and everything else. Well, when Paul was going around killing Christians, you know, he just didn't say, I think I'll go knock off a couple Christians. No, he thought it was part of his religious duty. He said, hey, these kind of rebellious people, they're, they're kind of getting into our, our end of the field here. We need to get rid of them. How dare they? But what did God do? God basically, on the road to Damascus, transformed his heart, changed him from this blasphemer who persecuted Christians to the point where he was totally changed. I mean, if anybody would be cut off from God, it would have been Saul. (laughs) When you stop and think about it. Because he, he was killing God's own people. And so God kind of has a sense of humor. Like, I'm going to save this guy and show everybody just how big my grace is. As a matter of fact, Paul was, Saul was such a bad guy. When they heard that he got saved and they started calling Paul, you know, some of them didn't even want to be around the guy. They, they didn't trust him. They thought, man, he's going to kill us just like he did before. This is a ruse. You know, he's not really changed. And it, and it took effort for Paul to kind of overcome that reputation why because he was a christ rejecting christ hating christian hating christian killing jew and he was proud of it so if anybody would ever not be allowed into a a a covenant that should be cut off it would have been this guy but he says no that didn't happen because i'm i'm an israelite i'm the seed of abraham i'm the tribe of benjamin And yet he was a leading spokesman at the time for the Christian faith. I mean, that just shows you, you never know how God is going to work. Don't ever give up praying for that lost relative or that neighbor, whoever you have, that guy, girl at work, whatever it might be, that's just a total pagan and totally hates God. Don't ever fail to pray for them that God could save them because God could. Well, people said that, you know, God has set aside whole Israel. Paul saying, nope, that's not the case because I'm here and I'm, I'm Jew and I'm a Christian and I'm part of God's family. Well, the second thing here, and this is kind of where we catch up with us today, is verse 2. I said we were going to go through this slowly. So, verse 2. Look at the first part of this verse. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's almost Paul doubles down on this answer, right? He asks the big question in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. And he can't leave it alone. He gives his example of himself. And he says, hey, you know what? I just want to reiterate. God has not rejected his people. Look in the Old Testament in, in Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. Because we have to understand, well, you notice there, it doesn't say Israel in verse 2. It says God has not rejected who? His people. That's important to understand. In verse 22 of 1 Samuel 12, it says this, For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
I mean, why would God be pleased by making you a people for himself only to cancel those people out? Doesn't make any sense. Can't happen. The Lord will not forsake his people. And by the way, in that grouping of his people are all those that come to Christ as well. Just so you understand. In Psalm chapter 94, verse 14, Psalm 94, verse 14, the writer of the psalm there says, For the the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. He won't forsake his people. Well, also in Psalm 89, verses 31 to 37. Psalm 89 gives a list of all these things they do wrong, starting in verse 31. Psalm 89, it says, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. This is God speaking. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. There you see God swearing by himself again. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Over and over, the Old Testament reiterates this. But I think the best place, if you turn over to Psalm 106... Psalm 106. I mean, this is really a... a, Starts off there, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. What? His steadfast love endures forever. And if you jump all the way down, you can read that in your own time, but jump all the way down to verse 39. Tells them all this stuff they did. It says in verse 39, Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he had abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the land of nations so that Those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them. You think, wow, there's hope. But look at that. But they were rebellious in their purposes. And were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, look at verse 44. He looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And look at verse 45. For their sake he remembered their goodness? No. All the great things they did? No. It says, for their sake he remembered his, what? His covenant. His promise. And he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let the people say amen, praise the Lord. I mean, you can't get any clearer indication that God is faithful to his word. That he's not going to turn his back on Israel. It's not within his character. I mean, no matter how many times they rejected him, no matter how many times they went off and they did their own thing, it's important that we understand that clearly uh, God was faithful and he remains faithful. If you look at, at Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, And you read in your own time there, if you read through Nehemiah chapter 9, we, we don't have time to go through the whole thing. But basically, it's, it's the people of Israel confessing their sin. And you read over and over and over again how they just totally blew it. 
And they go through all the way down. You look all the way down to verse 31. It says in verse 26, they were disobedient. They rebelled against God, against the law, all this stuff. They killed your prophets. And in verse 31, it says this. It says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and what? Merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. It's so important that we see the faithfulness of God in all that. I mean, you can read Jeremiah 30, 31, Isaiah 14. It all goes back to the same answer that Paul gave. There's absolutely no way that God would ever reject his people. It's impossible because it goes against the very character of God. And so, go back to Romans 11. And Paul just simply says here, no, there's no way that would ever happen. First of all, because of who I am, I'm a Jew, and I'm, I'm in the covenant of God, I'm a believer. And secondly, because of God's own people. They're God's own people. But then thirdly, we also see here that it's not just his people, but it also deals with God's plan. God's plan. And this is the end of chapter 2 here. He says, God has not rejected his people for he what? Whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. It's interesting when you ask people, what does that word mean, foreknew? A lot of people will say, well, I believe that means that God looked through the corridors of time and he made decisions based upon our decisions. That's not what it means. I mean, logically, that may make sense in our own mind, but that's not what that word means. That word literally means to predeterminate. It's a predetermination to love somebody. It's not knowing something before it happens. That's not what it means. The word here, prognosco, basically means that God has chosen to set his love on someone. That's why here it, it doesn't say, has God rejected Israel? No, it says, God, has God rejected what? His people. Why? Because his people, it denotes a relationship there. He's not going to cast his own people away. Why? Because he has ties with them. He has a relationship with them. Why? Because he foreknew them. Well, what do you mean? In other words, God in eternity past predetermined to love them. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? If you read the first chapter of Ephesians. Where Paul says, basically... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. I could go on and on, but hopefully you get the point. It's his plan that saves you. The Old Testament upheld this too in Amos 3.2. It tells us, you know what? Israel only have I known. Did that mean that God only knew that one thing? His, his, his knowledge was limited. He didn't know the other nations. It doesn't mean that. That word known is the same understanding of the word we're looking at now. It means that he predetermined to love them. It doesn't mean the only people in the world that God knew about were the Jews. But it says, Israel only have I predetermined to love with this intimate relationship. I've joined them to myself in this intimate bond. It's the the same idea when, you remember in the New Testament, when the Bible speaks of Joseph and Mary, they're about to ready to get married. Well, what happened? She's with child. And they scratched their head and they said, wow, wait a minute. (laughs) And the Bible said, oh no, wait a minute. Joseph has not known her. Same word, same understanding. Or sometimes it it says in the Bible that a person never knew a man. It doesn't mean that, 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 you know, like Mary never knew, knew, knew any man at all. It's not speaking of that. It means in a relationship way, an intimate way. It's a predetermined love relationship. That's what that word carries. The word for means pre. Has the the predetermined love relationship. Foreknown. So you have to stop and you have to think about this. So God is not pushed away. He hasn't rejected his own people. Because he's the one that chose to love them in the first place before they were even around. You can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, beloved, and, and see where it says, I predetermined to set my love upon you. It's the foreordination of that relationship. It's the foreknowledge of his will. It's the same as determination. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this basically is just kind of to wrap this up. Peter here is preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem after the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He preaches about Jesus of Nazareth in verse 22. And then he says in verse uh, 23 here in Acts 2, he talks about what happened. And he says in verse 23, this Jesus, the one I'm talking about, delivered up according, look at this, to the Definite plan and what? Foreknowledge of God. This is the guy that you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless man. He just wants them to know that, you know what? Even though you killed the Savior, that's all part of God's plan. I, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I take a lot of comfort in the fact that we serve a God who's sovereign. You know, when, when stuff happens, when I'm driving down the freeway and, and, and something happens, you know, the tire blows out or you get in an accident. As a believer in a sovereign God, I don't have to go, oh, no, what do I do? Things are out of control. No, I can just relax and say, you know what? Hey, God's got this. I don't know why this is happening. I don't like it. But God, yeah, I'm your child. And I know that somehow this is part of your plan for me today because it's happening. That changes the way you live on a daily basis, beloved. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. Why? Because you're trusting in a sovereign God. You're trusting in a God who's determined his counsel, the foreknowledge of God. He's willing to put his character on trial for us and say, you know what? If I say something, if I promise something, you can trust in it. Even in 1 Peter 1, verse 19... He's talking about the salvation that we have, how we're saved. In verse 19, 1 Peter 1, he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, look at what he says in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
Wow. You mean before there was ever even a world, God set a plan of salvation? In effect, yes. Don't ever think that God responds, that God reacts to us. I mean, sometimes that's how we pray, right? I mean, we come to a prayer meeting and, oh, I, you know, I'm just so, so worried, you know, this happened. And, and we're all threatened. Oh, we got to pray about this. God already knows. He already knows. We just need to kind of chill out, cool down a little bit and realize, hey, you know what? We serve a sovereign God. He's got this. And we need to continue to trust in that. That's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you remember that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And by the way, those whom he justified, he's going to glorify. They're already done. It's a done deal. So when we read that verse in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, that God is not going to reject his people. Why? Because, first of all, God gives us the person of Paul. He gives us the love for his people. And then he says, you know what? It's not even in my plan. It's not part of my plan. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the earth who were on the face of the earth, you're it. Verse 7, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. You were the fewest of all people. Then why did you choose them, God? It's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh the king. It says the Lord set his love on you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God set his love on me. Before I even knew there was a God, he set his love on me. He chose me before the foundation of the world to come to him. I just want to say, if you're here this morning and you've heard what we've talked about, you know, the Bible also says that God is not willing that any should perish. That's what it says. It says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's only one way out of that mess. And you know what? God doesn't desire you to go to hell. God's not up there going, I got some more crispy critters, you know. No, that's not the God that we serve. As a matter of fact, God loves us so much that he set this plan and this purpose in action before we were ever even around. Before the foundation of the world. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would reconsider that. When you stop and you realize what God has done for you. That he sent his own son to die on a cross for you, to pay your sins, past, present, future. I mean, you know, this isn't a shell game, beloved. This isn't, okay, well, what's really going to happen? No. God is a a God of, of truth. He's a God of honesty. He's a God of faithfulness. And that God says that, you know what, we're sinners and we need a Savior. But he also says, you know what, I sent a Savior. And all you do is you put your faith, your trust, you cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know there's no other way out of this mess other than your provision through Jesus Christ. And he'll answer that prayer. And you know what, he'll save you. He'll save you by his grace. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we even continue to read through chapter 11 and get into Elijah next week, I pray that we would 
come to an understanding that, God, you are so faithful to us that your word is true, that you will never lie. You never it's not, uh, switch the bait and you know, hide the hook. That's not who you are. You tell it to us just the way it is. And, Father, we thank you that, that Israel is an example of your grace. Unless anybody misunderstands, they have to come the same way we do. They come through Christ. And it's those who will put their faith ultimately in Christ as their Savior. They will be saved. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith in you, I pray that they would cry out to you, that you would transform their heart, their lives, that you would take the blinders off their eyes, that they could see the Savior for who he is. And as believers, as we go out into this lost and dying world and all the turmoil that's going on in our society, I pray that we would be a, 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 a soothing ailment to people's hearts as they see the trust that we have in a sovereign God that he's going to work all this out. I don't know how, but he will for his will, for his ultimate purpose. What a blessing it is to be part of it. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Praise you. Pray you bless our fellowship time over in the Fellowship Paul's way as well and bless the food of our bodies. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's